0: They called him, they called him the voice, the chairman of the board, the sultan of swoon, old blue eyes. And his name? Sinatra. When you hear the name Frank Sinatra, that famous crooner, I don't know what song comes to mind, but for me it's not a song, it's a place. A few years ago I was given a collection of, of live performances, recordings of, of Frank Sinatra live in Vegas, and it spanned multiple decades of his career. And as I looked at these set lists that he had sung more than 20 years apart, well, there were a lot of the same songs. And it made me wonder, how, how could he go to the same city and sing the same songs and people would still come out in droves to see him? Well, aside from the fact that it's Frank Sinatra, I think it's also because results require Repetition. And the more he sang those songs, the more he owned them and people associated them with him. Results require repetition. That's been the idea that has flown through this whole series. Keep this on repeat. We're in week three and we've been studying in the Psalms, which is the songbook of the Bible. I'm glad that you're with us, whether you are watching online or here live at our North Richland Hills campus. I'm so glad that you're spending time with us today. Now. We issued at the beginning of this series a Psalm a day reading challenge. And so if, if you've been doing that, thank you. I've seen a lot of activity at our Facebook page and also at one millionchapterscom And if you have not been reading, you can still join us. Go to our Facebook page and uh, just look up the Hills Church on Facebook. You'll be able to find a resource where you can read a Psalm a day with us. I think you'll be blessed by that. Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Psalm 121. It's where we're going to be today. Psalm number one hundred and twenty one. Now, this psalm is part of a collection of psalms. This little you can think of it almost as a playlist inside of the book of psalms called the songs of ascents. And these were songs that the Israelites would sing when they would travel to the same city, Jerusalem. During the religious festivals, people would travel from all corners of Israel and they would sing these same songs as they headed to the same city. And they'd sing them over and over and over again. And so we're going to take a look at this Psalm 121. And what I want to do is I'm going to read the whole thing for you. It's just eight verses. And, we're, you know, since it's a song, we don't normally listen to 30 seconds of a song and then pause it to consider something about it. We listen to the whole thing first. So I want you to hear this song and as you listen to it, listen and hear it in the context of going on a journey. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Now, for for pilgrims who were traveling and anyone who was traveling in ancient times, it was it was a dangerous thing. You did not go on a road trip for fun. In fact, the road was really a perilous place out traveling on the open road. You'd be exposed to all kinds of weather and extreme heat waves. And you didn't have a car. You didn't have air conditioning. Most likely you were traveling on foot. Now, maybe you were riding an animal if you had a little bit more money. But but for many people, they were traveling on foot. And that meant that every step they took mattered. Because as you're walking over terrain, one, one loose rock that you slip on and you sprain your ankle and you've ruined your trip. But more than that, you didn't know what kind of people you might meet on the road. A few years ago, I was in Rwanda working with a nonprofit organization. I was in college and had traveled with a group. And one of our assignments took us up into the hill country of Rwanda, way away from any city. And so we got in a van and we started to drive and it was daytime and we drove and drove and drove and then the sun started to go down and then it went down and we were still driving and it was late into the night. We were still driving and then finally at four in the morning, the van stopped, but not because the driver wanted it to. So we all got out of the van and the driver starts messing with it to figure out what the matter is. And, and as college students, after about 20 minutes of waiting around to see if this thing is going to start back up, we're starting to panic. I mean, we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Who's, who's going to help us? How are we going to contact anybody? We don't have cell phones, so we're not sure what to do about this. And then we hear this, tss, tss, tss. we look back down the hill from where we were driving up and, and we hear this, tss, And we start to see I mean, it was misty on this mountainside, so we can't really see, but we see some figure and we're not sure if it's a thing or if it's a who, but it's big. And we hear this. And then he came into view this huge, huge guy. I mean, he was broad. He was tall. He was big. And it was his footsteps. And he's headed right for us. And then we see that he's holding something and we we peer closer and then we see as he's walking, we see this glistening in the moonlight and he's holding a huge machete. Now, normally I'm a very brave person. Um, I like to compare myself to Superman in that way. And uh, the thing is, big, large men with big, large machetes late at night in Africa is kind of my kryptonite. So inwardly, I'm beginning to panic and I've got some major questions. First and foremost, would anyone be able to hear if we screamed more than that? Who in this group could I put in front of me as the first line of defense so that I might make a run for it? I mean, I don't know this guy's intentions. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how close anyone even lives to where we are at this moment, stuck on a mountain in Africa. And for a moment. I could feel what it might have been like to be a pilgrim traveling on the road, not sure who you'd run into or what their intentions might be. Now, that guy actually was really nice and he helped us get to where we needed to go. But as a pilgrim, you couldn't assume that with everyone that you came across. And so this this psalm would have been the kind of thing that you'd want to sing and have sung over you at the beginning of a journey. As these pilgrims were heading from all places in Israel to Jerusalem, they would want... To, to ask the question, where does my help come from? And have maybe a priest sing over the response. It was a song you wanted in your mind as you traveled. Now this first verse says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Different people have tried to interpret this Verse in different ways. Some have said, well, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And that's that's an idea of looking up and seeing just all the terrain you have to cover, seeing how how dangerous the trip would be and wondering where your help would come. Others have said, well, actually, the hills is this idea. It's this picture of Jerusalem itself, because Jerusalem was was perched atop of a hill. So pilgrims from any direction would eventually be looking up at Jerusalem at the place God was. And they would ascend to Jerusalem, which is one of the reasons this is called, the the section is called the Songs of Ascents, because they were ascending. But there's another interpretation I find especially helpful and illuminating in Psalm 121. It's that for anyone who was a traveler, if they wanted protection on the road, they would look up at the hills and they would see something that was very popular. They would see pagan worship. You see, it was uh, on the on the hilltops at the high places and the mountainsides that pagan worship took place. So if you were a traveler and you were asking for protection, where does my help come from? There were all manner of answers in the hills. Oh, you just just go to this priest and he'll speak an, incant, an incantation. Go to the go to this priestess and, and buy this amulet from her. And, and that way you'll have safe passage if you carry it with you. Go go to the shrine and make an offering. And, and that way you'll have safe passage from that God. There were all kinds of answers. And today we're not so different from those pilgrims. We're on a journey and we have the opportunity to look up at the hills. And when in life, when we ask, where does my help come from? People provide all kinds of different answers. Now, for the psalmist, he answers right right after this question. In verse two, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. If you're new with us, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad you're spending some time with us. Maybe you're wondering and you're curious, what does this church really believe about how life got started? I can tell you with great assurance, we believe this verse, that God made the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm not here today to talk about exactly what that looked like. But I can tell you, we believe in a God who's a creator who's a sustainer, who's a provider, that he spoke this world into being, that he has dominion over it. And for a traveler, that is a source of help. That if God is the one who created the rocks and the boulders, then he can protect me from the loose ones on my way. If he's the one who created the sun and the moon, then he can protect me from their elements. If, if he's the one who really has dominion over every place in the world, then he can surely guide and protect me along my way. Now, each week in this series, we've looked at a spiritual rhythm. Week one, we talked about honest prayer and week two, earnest worship. And this week we're talking about unending hope. And in this psalm, well, the hope, here's what hope does. If I was going to define it for you, hope trusts and expects the fulfillment of God's promises In many ways, this psalm is just it's it's a list of different promises and blessings from God. And what hope does is hope looks to God and trusts right now, but expects the fulfillment of those promises. So let's unpack some of the promises we have from God here. In verse three, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, we can take this verse, uh, these verses at face value. I mean, if, you, if you've got a watchman or a guard, you don't want them to fall asleep on the job. So we can rest assured we have a God who's not, who's not going to fall asleep on the job of watching over us, of protecting us. But there's also a comparison happening here between the almighty God that we believe in and a God who was very popular back then, a God named Baal. If you were a traveler, you could look to the hills and see lots of different worship happening in honor of Baal. Baal was a fertility god, and he was also known as the king of all the gods. And since he was associated with fertility and bringing about new life, you can imagine that some of the worship rituals were debaucherous. That people would get together and do all kinds of things with each other in honor of Baal. And what these people believed was that Baal himself would become involved in that heinous activity, that in that debauchery, in that reverie, that, that he, he would get involved and Baal himself would be there and he would become so intoxicated in what was happening in all the partying that, that he would pass out. This is actually what they believed, that their God would get drunk and pass out based on what they were doing. And then the priests and priestesses had rituals they would actually perform to try and kind of wake Baal up from his hangover. I know this is bizarre, but it's actually what they believed. It's actually what they did. You can see kind of a hint of this in First Kings when a prophet of God named Elijah faces off against a bunch of prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal set up an altar and they want they want Baal to burn it up. And so they begin to perform these different acts of worship and rituals and speaking incantations. And they just make a ruckus and they they scream and they holler. And and then they begin to cut themselves after a few hours trying to to get their God to wake up and do something. And after uh, some of this, Elijah just starts to trash talk. (laughs) He's like, well, I guess he's not waking up yet must must just be out cold. I guess you guys aren't being loud enough because I'm sure he'd wake up if he really heard you. You see, Elijah was making fun of the prophets of Baal based on what they actually believed, that they were trying to wake him up. Now, I know today we, we have a hard time, you know, relating to the idea of, of performing a ritual for some kind of a pagan idol. But let me put it in these terms. Maybe it's the difference between a God who says, I'll be with you always... Or a way of life that is an invitation to a party that feels great at night, but is no help the morning after. Have been there recently? That feel-good kind of escape moment. That high you were chasing that, that felt great and it was a rush in the moment and it kind of pushed your problems away. But But the next day or a few hours later, all of your issues and problems were still right there waiting for you. For a few years, I... Volunteered with a ministry called celebrate recovery and it's a christian recovery program that helps people work through their hurts habits and hang-ups And I heard a lot of stories working with that ministry It was people who looked to the hills And they were looking for ways to chase that feel-good moment They used all kinds of different things to do this Some of them used food Some of them used inappropriate relationships Some of them used alcohol or different kinds of substance abuse. The list was extensive, but what they all had in common was that they realized and they came to a place where they saw what I'm running to and chasing is not helping, it's actually hurting. It is not giving me protection. It's actually beginning to wound me and scar me. It is not what I thought it would be and it never lasts and I could never party enough. I could never reach that feel good moment or chase that high to make it last as long as I really want it to. And they found disappointment in those hills. And the comparison here is is, is is giving us an assurance in a God who says, I'm with you Always. I'm not just with you for a moment to give you a, a feel-good kind of, kind of warmth. I'm not here to just give you a rush of emotions or adrenaline. I'm here with you in every moment when you're excited and when you're worn out in the late nights and in the morning after. I'm with you always, and I don't sleep on my job. Amen. Now, the psalmist continues with more promises. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, Israel is a desert country, and I've been there in the summer, and it is hot. I would not want to be a traveler on that road, exposed to to the elements and the sun beating down. But maybe for us, that that sun could be a, a better picture of the stress and anxiety in our life. Let me put it this way. What is it that makes you sweat? What is it that makes you worried? That makes you nervous? The things you think about that keep you up at night. Maybe it's related to your family, to your kids. Maybe it's a question or concern about your your financial situation. Maybe it's a worry about about your career, about the issues you've had at work and the numbers are going down and you're, you're worried and you're concerned. And what is it that makes you sweat? But there's also a picture here of the fact that the The moon won't harm us either. So the sun might, might symbolize the stress of life, but the moon? How could the, I mean, we don't, we don't really get what, what we're, what we're talking about here, do we? The moon? How's the moon gonna harm us? I mean, I get the sun could cause heat stroke, but what's the moon gonna do? In biblical times, the moon was associated with the idea of anguish, inner turmoil, mental disease, or even, even sanity itself. That's why when we have a word that describes insanity, lunacy, the root word luna is the same root word that's in the lunar calendar. That was the superstition. That was the belief that somehow the moon had some some power, some, some way in which it could make people depressed or crazy or full of anguish and sorrow or loneliness. And maybe it represents the dark night of the soul. Now... There's different ways that people try and fend off the things that make them sweat, the things that concern them, or the sorrow or emptiness or depression that they might feel. If you were a traveler back then and, and you wanted to protect yourself from the sun and the moon on a journey, you would look to the hills and you would head to the sun priest or the moon priestess and you would, you would ask for or pay for some kind of an incantation or, or a token, some kind of an amulet that you would wear or carry with you that would protect you along the way. Now today, we don't necessarily buy amulets, but maybe we just buy stuff. Maybe we look to the hills and the hills might be the mall. It might be Amazon.com. It might be eBay. Things that we can buy and, and collect and accumulate that we think this is the stuff that's going to give me meaning. The things that I want, the things that I desire. Or maybe maybe instead you look to the hills and, and for you the, 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 the hills represent something that, that you want to achieve. Some business you're trying to build, some amount of money, maybe it's a number in your bank account. You feel like it's got to be there, or I don't feel safe in this life. I don't know what it is with it. You look to the hills for for that security, or maybe it's fame, acclaim, approval, whatever it is. And if there was anyone who could buy happiness, who could have achieved enough that they would feel like, okay, I've got what I need. I've got enough stuff. I've got enough money. I've got enough fame. Well, it would be someone like Brad Pitt. He's known all over the world. I mean, this guy is incredibly famous. He's successful. He's respected in his field as an actor. He's ridiculously wealthy. He should have enough, right? But in an interview, Brad Pitt said, I'm the guy who's got everything. I know. But I'm telling you, Once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better. And you don't wake up any better because of it. Hear from the guy who's made it to the hills that many of us are chasing the hills many of us want to ascend to get the stuff we want or the approval or the acclaim or the respect or the fame or whatever it is that you're chasing. Here's a guy who's got so much of what so many of us think we want, think will help us on the way. And he's saying this, this is not cutting it. The psalmist continues with a promise. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Now that is a sweeping promise. The Lord will keep you from all harm. And there is the danger that, that we might read this passage and think, okay, okay, I get it. Maybe I've been on the fence, but, but if I just give my life to God... If I decide I'm going to claim Christ and get baptized, then then once I come up out of that water, once I've given my life to God, well, I I get it. You're saying God's going to make it smooth sailing for the rest of the way. He's going to clear the path. I won't have any of that stress. I won't have any of those problems. I won't have an unexpected diagnosis come up. I won't have financial pressure. I won't have issues in my family. And we can trick ourselves into thinking that somehow God's just going to. Make all of our problems go away. So how is it then that we could actually hope in this promise and trust in it right now? What I believe is that if we interpret scripture with scripture, we see the rest of the Psalms deal with struggles, deal with hurt, deal with the the, the dark nights of the soul and the stress and anxiety of life. They deal with all those things, but they deal with it with God. And that is to say, if we continue to lean on him and be with him, then God will provide for us an inner peace through his spirit, a comfort, a confidence that will rest within so that whatever comes from without, through him, we can can bear it. Through him, we can survive. Through him, we will overcome. That's the promise here, that we can trust right now. And how is it that we can trust that, that, that God's really faithful, that he's really been with us? Now, for other travelers, they're going to look to the hills and they're going to see different answers to where their help comes from. But I want to take you to a different collection of hills. When we look back in, in scripture and we might have questions about about whether or not maybe the question is, is God really going to provide for me? Will he really be there for me? I want to take you to the hill called Mount Moriah where a man named Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son and God provided the sacrifice that he needed. To spare his son's life. The Lord will provide. For the times when you've lost your moral compass. And you're not sure what's right or what's wrong. Or what to do. I want to take you to the hill. Mount Sinai. Where God delivered the law to Moses. And he he described the right and the wrong. He laid out the truth as a guard and a guide for the people of Israel and for us today. For the times when you wonder, is God going to step in? Will he intervene I want to take you to the hill called Mount Carmel where Elijah faced off with those prophets of Baal and God himself sent fire down from heaven in order to burn up and eat up that and consume the entire altar to show he is the one true God who will intervene and he is active in our lives. And for the moments when you don't know how to how to how to deal with others, how to walk through the day to day things of life, I want to point you to the hill where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and he, he distributed a kind of wisdom and knowledge that we so desperately need and we can return to it over and over again to know how to walk through life. For the times when you wonder, is Jesus really God? I mean, I get He could be a wise teacher, but He's actually divine I want to take you to the hill called the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus gave three of his disciples a glimpse of his majesty, his glory, his power to show that he truly is the one true God. And for the times when you think, could God ever forgive me? Does God love me? I want to take you to the hill called Golgotha where Jesus was raised up on a cross in a high place. And he was murdered, crucified, executed for my sin and for your sin. And that was near a road. The Romans wanted people to see him die. They wanted to see criminals punished. But yet this innocent man was up on a cross as travelers passed by. And when they looked up that day, they didn't know they were looking At their forgiveness. They didn't know they were looking at a savior. They didn't know they were looking at their ultimate help and hope. And so they mocked him and jeered him. And yet Jesus even said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. This is a God who forgives us, who so loves us he would allow his own son and he himself would be crucified to pay for our sins. But there are folks who have just a hard time wrestling with and believing these truths. I recently went to a public debate. And it was between a Christian apologist. And a, and a pretty well-known atheist. Now the, they were debating the question. Does God exist? And the debate was was very respectful. There was healthy dialogue. I, I enjoyed being there. But it kind of. Well the, the atheist mentioned that he was a humanist. And I started thinking about that. Now for those who may be less familiar with it. Humanism is the belief that that basically the only way we can understand life is through science and rational thought. And so this life is all there is. And anything that you can test scientifically or experience yourself, that's the only thing you can call true. Anything else beyond that, anything supernatural, we can't claim it. We don't know anything about it. It does not exist, according to the humanist. And so they contribute to life. And humanists can still be good people, and I'm not giving an exhaustive definition. But that's essentially what what, uh, humanism is about. Now, after the debate, I tweeted to this famous atheist and and I, I just said, hey, I've got a sincere question. What hope does humanism offer to someone who's facing death? In that place, wondering that their life is on the line, if they were to look to the hill of humanism, what hope does it offer? And he replied to me, which I really appreciated. And here's what he said. The hope is in the life they've lived not what comes after. I sent some follow-up questions to try and better understand what he meant, but, but he, he didn't respond. And so I've wrestled with this all week. In his short, you know, less than 140-character response, the hope is about the life you've lived, not what comes after. I was trying to think about what, what does he mean by that? And the best thing that I could, could come up with is basically when you get to that place where, 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 where you are facing death and you look to the hill of humanism... I guess what it says is well you you just look back on your life and go well I'm I'm grateful that I'm grateful that I lived a good life although for many of us we would look back and maybe we wouldn't describe all of our life as good in fact we wouldn't and that we've made mistakes and there were things we've done people we've hurt that we wish we could take back or you might look back and go well you know what at least I've achieved what I always wanted to achieve although for many of us when we look back we're Filled with regret at the things we never accomplished, the things we chased after. Or you might look back and go, well, at least at least I had relationships. At least I had connections with people who loved me and cared for me unconditionally. But for many of us, we could look back and see the broken relationships, the hurt feelings, the wounds that were inflicted and that we even ourselves received from others. And some people experience just that loneliness even towards the end of life. And as I thought about it more and more, as I wrestled with this idea, what I realized was he was not talking about hope. You see, hope, by definition, does not look back. You you, you don't do a retrospective when you're talking about hope. When you talk about hope, you're talking about an an anticipation of something, an expectation of something. Hope, by definition, looks ahead. It's something you hope will happen. So, (laughs) So for someone who says, well, you just look back, that doesn't that doesn't actually make sense with hope. That's comfort. That's consolation. That is not the same thing as hope. And that's why for the psalmist, the psalmist is, is willing to say, I trust God's promises. How, how does he finish both now and forevermore? And that phrase is repeated in the Psalms over and over and over again, both now and forevermore now and forevermore. And for us, if we if we're willing to trust God's promises right now, then we can also confidently expect their fulfillment in eternity and in God's timing. That's what unending hope is all about. And, and in Scripture, there, there's a glimpse. There's a glimpse into what eternity might look like. A glimpse into how God will fulfill some of the promises that are even right here in Psalm 121. So I want to take you to one more hill. I want to take you to the hill where a man named John was, was lifted up to to get a vision of, of eternity, of the return of Christ. Now, in Revelation 21, it says, and, and John's talking, he's talking about God, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. So John's up on this mountain and he's getting this vision. And what he sees is the city of God called the New Jerusalem heading down out of heaven. Now, the pilgrims in Psalm 121, they were headed for Jerusalem. And us, as as followers of God, as believers in Christ, we are ultimately heading towards the new Jerusalem. We're, We're pilgrims as well. And as John's describing this city, he starts talking about it. Now, in Psalm 121, it says that the sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. That's a promise that's that he will be our shade, our our guard, our protector, our protector. And we can we can trust that now. But let me show you its fulfillment in Revelation 21. John's describing the city and he says the city, this new Jerusalem, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. Now, don't miss this. We're seeing a fulfillment of this promise, of this protection, that the sun and the moon are no longer necessary, and we don't have to worry about the stresses of life or the dark nights of the soul. Instead, the glory of God, His very presence, will be our light. And at night, the Lamb, Christ Himself, Jesus, will be our lamp. It'll be replaced, and it'll be God and Jesus instead of the sun or the moon. Now, more than that, in this psalm, there's this promise. The Lord will keep you from all harm. We can trust that now because of the cross of Christ that removes our sin from us, which is the ultimate harm. But more than that, we can see its fulfillment in Revelation 21. Describing God, John says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Once again, we can trust right now that God will be with us and give us peace and protect us, but, but even, even more, we can confidently expect He will fulfill that promise. Now in Psalm 121, God's described as the maker of heaven and earth. And we believe that we trust that right now that he's sovereign over creation. But we see that fulfilled in a whole new way in Revelation 21, because John, as he's describing God, he says, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Do you hear this? Do you see this, that that in in a glimpse of eternity, we see the fulfillment of all that God is, all that he does, all that he's promised to us. And we have a God who made the heavens and earth, who through Jesus Christ remakes our hearts, and who ultimately someday will make everything new. That is our unending hope that we have in Jesus. So, so this week, this week, wherever you're at on the spiritual spectrum, whatever you are wrestling to believe or not sure what you believe, or maybe you're confident in your belief. I hope that all of us, wherever we're at, can acknowledge and maybe point out some of the high places that are in our life. What are the hills that you run to for comfort, for meaning, for hope? I think all of us have them. And for those of us who, who really claim Christ, I hope that our belief and expectation of forevermore can affect our journey now that we can walk in confidence, that we have a God who is with us and who someday will make everything new, will make all the sad things untrue, will wipe every tear from our eyes and His glory will be our light. That is the unending hope that we have in Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we thank You for Your mercy and grace. We see that most fully in Jesus and His willingness to sacrifice himself to die on a cross to pay for our sins but we praise you for raising him from the grave to give us hope unending hope that we can claim both now and forevermore not because we deserve it but only because of your grace and mercy and your unending love for us it's in your name we pray amen i'd ask you to stand and for those who are on our response team if you'd go ahead and take your places at this time We're going to sing, we're going to worship together, and this is a time where maybe maybe you need to pray with someone. Maybe you need to acknowledge some hills that you've been running to that aren't where God wants you to be. Or maybe you want to talk with someone about Jesus. As we worship together, we've got people who are ready to pray and talk with you. That's what this this time is for. So come while we worship.